Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. Since beginning our sermon series for the first quarter of 2021, we have been progressing through the Gospel of Luke one chapter a week. Not the whole chapter, but verses from each chapter, one a week. And so last Sunday, week seven in the series, we explored Luke 7, particularly the first 10 verses, the healing of the Roman centurion's servant. This means that this week, this Sunday, we'd be looking at Luke 8. But in our Christian tradition, the Sunday that precedes the beginning of Lent, this Sunday, is known as Transfiguration Sunday. In adherence to this observance, it makes sense for us to skip ahead one chapter to Luke 9 and to hear Luke's account of Jesus' transfiguration. Now, very early in Luke 9, I think it's at verse 9, um, Herod uh, hears some rumors about Jesus and sort of asks, who is this guy? And then a little bit later in Luke 9, uh, verse 18, and then in verse 20, Jesus himself poses questions to his disciples about his divinity. He says, who do people say that I am and who do you, my disciples, say that I am? Now, as we will hear, The transfiguration is a decisive moment when Jesus' identity is powerfully revealed to an inner circle of his disciples, Peter, uh, James, and John, who Jesus has taken with him up a mountainside to pray. So let's hear that story. Today's reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, starting at verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to him. 
And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Those of us who have been church attenders for a long time are undoubtedly familiar with the transfiguration story. Not only because it is told here in Luke 9, but because this story is also told in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, and in Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Indeed, unlike Luke, Matthew and Mark actually use the word transfigured to describe what happens to Jesus' appearance. And while there are other subtle differences in each of the Gospels, there are also common elements that evoke Israel's foundational stories. For example, they all tell us that Jesus' face and clothing became dazzlingly white. It's a mystical transformation that connects to a story from Exodus 34, 29 through 35, where Moses' face shines so brightly after he's been with God on Mount Sinai that Moses must wear a veil when he comes down from the mountain. All three Gospels also reveal that two figures appear with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are undoubtedly two of the greatest and most revered figures of Israelite history. Moses, the author of the Torah or the law, and Elijah, considered to be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. According to New Testament scholar Sharon Ringy, there was an expectation that when the prophet of the end came, that prophet would be in the likeness of both Moses and Elijah. And so in verse 35, when the voice from the cloud says, listen to him, the point seems to be that Jesus is to be uh, listened to beyond, not instead of, but beyond both Moses and Elijah. This does not mean that the law and the prophets are to be set aside but that Jesus stands in continuity with them. Nonetheless, Jesus is the sublime revelation of what it means to fulfill the law and the prophets, and so listen to him to find out what it means to fulfill the law and the prophets. Luke also connects this story to Israel's history by summarizing Jesus' conversation with his heavenly visitors in verse 31, where the word translated as departure is exodus. Exodus, of course, is the second book 
of the Bible. Again, Sharon Ringy points out that in Israel's history, the Exodus marks the beginning of the Hebrews' long journey out of Egypt and into the promised land. Exodus is their essential salvation story, a journey from slavery into freedom. Here, Luke uses the word Exodus just before the outset of Jesus' long journey to Jerusalem and the cross. And Christians maintain that this is how God works to liberate us from the enslaving powers of sin and death. And so with all of this that is going on on the mountain, it is understandable that, that Peter becomes both transfixed and incoherent. As he knows the stories of Moses and, and the stories of Elijah and the, and the story of how God acted to redeem the Hebrew slaves from Egypt, Peter wants to cling to the dazzling brightness of this transfiguration experience that is so otherworldly. Master, he says, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, three tents, three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter does not want this moment to end. Many of us can relate to Peter's desire to hang on to this spiritual high. Maybe we've experienced something remarkable at the Walk to Emmaus. Many members here have uh, participated in Walk to Emmaus. Maybe we've gone to summer or winter camp at Forest Home. Maybe we participate in a, in a summer service project like SSP. Maybe we've had a transformative experience at a, at a retreat weekend. Maybe we've been engaged in a Bible study that that feels particularly life-giving. Maybe there was a time when we heard the call to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior in a way that we never had before and we were filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to cling to those moments, right? Like Peter, we can get transfixed by our experience, captivated by the, the glory and wonder. And then either literally or figuratively, we seek to build some sort of fixture that will ground us in that powerful moment, a, a place that we can point to and say, that is where God is. I have participated in and, and led many 
camps and retreats at various location, locations. Every time after someone's first experience at the camp, they'll fixate on that place because that is where God showed up for them in a remarkable way. And so Forest Home becomes that dwelling, that tabernacle for God. For me, it, it was uh, Camp Cedar Glen in Julian. At another church I served, it was Camp Arroyo Grande. And at another church, Lazy W Ranch. And those are mostly only Methodist camps. I suspect that God also shows up in a remarkable way at Presbyterian and, and Episcopal and, and other such camps. But it's not only physical places that we can get fixated on. It can be a, a certain passage of Scripture, say John 3.16 or Philippians 4.13, to name a couple. Uh, or it could be a certain prayer formula that we get fixated on, say the sinner's prayer. Or, or it can be a certain uh, doctrine, like penal substitutionary atonement or uh, biblical inerrancy. It, it can be a particular position on a matter of some controversy. Abortion. School prayer. Homosexuality. And, and in this fixation, we become certain that God has shown up for us and could not possibly show up in other ways for other people. More subtly, we can get fixated on the music we prefer for worship. The furnishings in the sanctuary. The color of the carpeting where the pastors preach from, what the pastors wear. I have been following a controversy uh, about women ministers and whether they should ever wear dangling earrings. In the midst of this pandemic, when we and so many congregations have been dislocated, from our sanctuaries, I can't help but wonder if this is actually God's way of displacing us from the places where we become fixated. Could this be God's way of inviting us to question whether our places of worship, our preferred styles of worship, our cherished beliefs and opinions have actually become like that proverbial dwellings that Peter sought to erect. A place where we can hold on to and perhaps even manage our experiences of God in a way that serves our personal preferences and keeps us from going any further with Jesus 
closer to the cross of Christ. There is something else that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share in common about this transfiguration story. And I am embarrassed to say that I only saw it for the first time this week after more than two and a half decades of ministry. You see, ironically, in all of these years, I've concentrated on the story of the transfiguration on Transfiguration Sunday, what occurs on the mountain, not seeing what occurs immediately afterwards. And it occurs in all three of the Gospels, not just one, and that's what I hadn't seen. And what it is, is the story of, of the healing of a child who has a malign spirit. On the next day, as Luke tells it, when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, Jesus. Just then, a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, my only child. Suddenly, a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks. It, it convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him alone. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I bear, be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Here, <laughs> it's right next to each other. There's a direct scriptural link and testimony that we are not to become so transfixed by our mountaintop experiences that they become for us an excuse for escapism. You know, some people say, not of this world. <laughs> it's not what it's about. Indeed, we have to be, continue to become transformed as we heed the voice from the cloud that has told us, listen to him. Because our vital spiritual experiences, no matter how transformative and, and amazing they are, they are not the point. No, they are God-given gifts to prepare us for the nitty-gritty work of encountering the demonic forces that oppress, subjugate, and ensnare people 
in captivity. As one pastor writes, whether it is the oppressive demons of poverty and addiction and mental illness, or the evil spirits of narcissism, racism, materialism, and violence, Christians are called to face the power of these evils in a hostile, cynical world. So in closing, I, I want to leave you with a few questions to ponder today. Some might come to you on your own. I would pray that the Spirit is, is working in your heart and mind as you ponder these words, but let me give you some questions. Are you transfixed by some prior experience of Jesus, or are you being transformed by Jesus? In other words, where have you gotten stuck in your faith? When and how have you been taking time to listen to him? So I'm not talking about talking to him in prayer, but listening to him. Both in prayer and in reading the scriptures, particularly the gospel. And then this question, what voices might you need to block out in order to listen to Jesus more attentively? These are the questions I invite you to ponder. Amen.